The music of Supernova. Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our September 8th, 2011 edition of the show, 4.10 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. If you've ever spent time in the uh, downtown areas of certain major cities, you've probably noticed speeding bicycle messengers and maybe thought their appearance, style, and behavior were curious. Who are these guys and gals, and what attracts them to this dangerous, dirty, low-paying work? What makes them so passionate about it that their after-work activities are an extension of the day job? Answers to these questions and more are found in a new book called Urban Flow, Bike Messengers and the City. Author Jeffrey Kidder is assistant professor of sociology at Northern Illinois University and is a former bike messenger. He is our uh, special guest today. Uh, Jeffrey Kidder, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a fascinating book. I knew very little about this. I live here in the suburbs and uh, spend a little bit of time in uh, Los Angeles, occasionally uh, San Diego, and, uh, um, you know, recently spent a little time in Portland, uh, Oregon. And so I, I've seen these bicycle messengers, but not to any great degree and hadn't really thought about it that much. And then when I got this book, I was like, wow, <laughs> there's something going on here that needs to be talked about. Uh, so how was it that you came to write this book? Yeah, well, I was interested in what it is about work that can uh, actually be enjoyable or even more so, what, what about work could be meaningful because most of us in our lives uh, have work that is the antithesis of that. You know, our, our work feels boring. We, we don't feel as though it has that much meaning for us other than it gives us a paycheck. But with bike messengers, we see that the labor itself is, is actually in many cases enjoyable, and that being a bike messenger for, for many of the riders becomes a, a real essential part of their identity. And again, that's very different from how a lot of us relate to work. So I was curious about that, and I wanted to explore it and understand, as you said in the introduction, like what, what is going on there? And that's, that's why I wrote the book. It, so, so let's be clear about this. Some people may not, you know, some, some people here never venture out of the suburbs, and uh, so they maybe don't have a clue. Uh, bike messengers work in an urban environment delivering time-sensitive materials that can't be digitized. It's a situation where a bicycle is really the only possible way to get from point A to point B by the deadline. Is that generally what's going on? Yes, exactly. And so, yeah, and you're right. The people that haven't spent a lot of time in in uh, congested downtown cores, in particular older cities, so these cities that were basically where the main transportation infrastructure was built before World War II, these would be the kind of cities that tend to be condensed as opposed to sprawled out. So L.A. has bike messengers, but it's not uh, a great example of a bike messenger city where 
uh, New York City, you know, the island of Manhattan is, is very congested. And so if you want to send something from Midtown to the financial district, uh, if you took a car, it would take you much longer because a car is going to be stuck in traffic. A car uh, has to stop at red lights. Technically, a bicycle legally has to stop at red <laughs> lights, but it's pretty easy for a cyclist to, to not stop at red lights. It's obviously a lot easier to park a bicycle than it is to find a parking space for a car in, in Manhattan. And so, so, yeah, for things that still need to be physically delivered somewhere, and they're really, even in our digital age, there are still things that need hard copies sent back and forth. A bicycle, is, a bicycle is the fastest way to get there, and a bicycle operated by a man or woman willing to engage in some rather risky and physically strenuous uh, activity in order to get there can, can go very fast. Yeah, yeah, and this is, uh, you mentioned the, the red lights, and this is, uh, technically, bicyclists are supposed to stop at red lights, but uh, these uh, bicycle messengers often don't, and this is part of the allure and part of the sort of uh, outsiders who look up to bike messengers is kind of like looking at them as, as outlaws who, who don't feel they necessarily have to obey the, the rules of the road, and actually their job, in a, to a degree, requires it. And it's not a situation where they're bitching about it. They, they sort of relish this idea that they're having to go around the law. Yeah, very very much so. I mean, there's a, for for certain certain, I guess, type type of person, right, that maybe feels a little disenfranchised from the average sort of work environment where you would have a manager sort of looking over your shoulder. The idea that you could go out into the city on a bicycle and have a lot of autonomy to to be making your own decisions and in the process making decisions that are in many ways counterintuitive, in some cases technically illegal, there is a, a real thrill that comes with that, a certain, like you said, outlaw image, a sort of uh, cowboy, uh, sort of a modern sort of cowboy imagery that goes with it. And, and yes, that is uh, very appealing to, to a lot of people. Yeah, when I told people I was reading this book and I was going to be interviewing you, I, I got some interesting reactions, and some people thought, Oh, those bike messengers, they're, they're intriguing people. And others were like, oh, those guys are rude, crazy bastards. And some had, a, had an awe and a, and a chuckle about guys able to pull off a, a cool outlaw mystique doing the, the dirty work of some of the most establishmentarian institutions. So is there a love, hate, envy, perception by outsiders? Oh, yes, without, without a doubt. I mean, like, so just as I was saying that it's uh, appealing to a lot of people, that sort of imagery, it's also uh, uh, very annoying and frustrating to, to a lot of people as well, right? Uh, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of, of disrespect and anger that is directed towards all cyclists, and certainly cyclists that uh, so willingly engage in bravado and sometimes uh, illegal behavior. It definitely creates... Uh, frustration on the part of motorists or anger on the part of motorists, and even some office workers, as you sort of mentioned, sort of feel that messengers maybe sometimes as they're hustling into buildings and hustling out of buildings are, are rude or uh, in some way disrespectful. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it cuts both ways, and, and that sort of goes along with the outlaw imagery is that j just as our American society oftentimes uh, 
cherishes the outlaw image, we also uh, disparage it at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting thing about America and why, uh, you know, like Western movies are so popular and uh, you have these hero, anti-hero type of characters and it's just all throughout our uh, history. And so these guys are like, what, you can sort of be that kind of guy or gal in this modern age. So, yeah, so generally speaking, bad behavior and unprofessional appearance are, are often overlooked by employers and clients as long as the package is delivered on time. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is, I mean for people that are hiring bike messengers, the, the real issue is that you have something that has some sort of uh, deadline. I mean, that deadline isn't always a 15-minute deadline. Sometimes it's, you know, a two-hour deadline, but it's going to take FedEx longer than two hours because FedEx is following a route, whereas a bike messenger is doing on-demand delivery. So it's things that need to be delivered that day that the bike messenger is doing. And so, and so yes, by and large, uh, those, the, the sort of issues of wearing a uniform or uh, having uh, normal hair or not having visible tattoos, those sort of issues are put to the side, and, and these people are allowed to do what they do best, which is, is make deliveries. And I guess we should also add that some companies, especially smaller sort of creative firms, I think they actually really like the, the outlaw image of the bike messenger. And I think that some messenger companies have been very successful at sort of tapping in to the fact that some, some of the more creative industries like having uh, the sort of uh, menacing and alternative-looking bike messenger delivering their packages, right? There's a certain cultural cachet that can come with that in some industries. And then other companies really wish <laughs> maybe that bike messengers look like more like EPS men. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, right. It, it's, but there is, you, you talk a lot in the book about the allure uh, of delivering packages in this manner, but there, there's also this allure by outsiders who, who look at these guys and, and just find them, uh, you, know, you know, the bad boy outlaw. That, that's intriguing to a lot of people. And so... Uh, the, the the relationship of the I- employer to the messenger almost reminds me of the situation where you see in a movie where somebody hires, let's say, a, a hitman, and it's like, I don't care how you do this, just just take care of it. And and is is that like there's a thing they kind of know they're going to break the law, they're going to be going through red lights and doing other kind of mm, sort of questionable things, but mm, just get the package there on time and no, no questions asked. Yeah, I mean, very much so, and that applies to both the, the messenger company as well as the company that's hiring the messenger. And so many messengers, when I worked in Seattle, a lot of the messengers there are doing uh, deliveries for law firms, and uh, many of the messengers found it very interesting or maybe even hypocritical that the same people that were in charge with sort of enforcing and upholding the laws of Seattle were routinely hiring messengers to make deliveries that could only be made by by breaking laws, right? So in order to deliver, uh, you know, something that was going to be adjudicated at the courthouse, you had to uh, run red lights and <laughs> ride on the sidewalk and do all sorts of other things you're not supposed to do in order to uh, to get that there. And, and messengers are aware of that sort of uh, irony, I guess. <laughs> um, and it really, I think that on a, on a other level, we can sort of think about how this says something about uh, modern work. Like you mentioned earlier about how uh, something to the effect of that messengers are sort of the dirty workers of the of the sort of corporate infrastructure, and that really is that really is true. That uh, it's messengering is a is a I think a really good example of how within 
our, our increasingly rationalized work environment that there are still these sort of pockets where there is the ability to have autonomy, to have creativity uh, and excitement in the workplace. But, you know, those, those sort of opportunities, I think, are, are shrinking in a lot of ways, and bike messengers are a good example of where it still sort of exists. Yes, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Jeffrey Kidder, and we're talking about his book, Urban Flow, Bike Messengers in the City. And, and yeah, that's sort of w- w- kind of one of the main bottom lines of, of the book is, is, like, what do bike messengers teach us about our relationship to, to work and how do they make us question what it is we're doing and how most of us just accept drudgery and don't find a way to make work interesting or entertaining yes i mean exactly and so that's that i think that is the the sort of take-home point is that most of us probably aren't going to be bike messengers but we can still see what is it about their work and in particular what we find with their work is that that unlike certain unlike we'll say most other sort of service uh service jobs entry-level sort of jobs Messenger work can't be uh, routinized because messengers have to, in order to make their fast deliveries, have to be given the autonomy to, to act independently as they're weaving their way through traffic. And it's that, it's that independence and that autonomy, as well as the, the physical aspects of the job, being able to, to be outside and be actively engaged with, with you know, your body. It's those sort of things, the creativity and the physical aspect, that allow the, the work to be meaningful. And so even if we're not bike messengers, we can think about how we can maybe try to incorporate those sort of things, if possible, into our work lives or even our non-work lives. Yeah, I mean, I have to say it even, it even made me think of, like, Han Solo from the original Star Wars movie, of this guy that's like, you know, he's just kind of living on the edge there, and it's just like, here I am, somebody needs something done that's maybe a little, uh, we got to break some laws to get it done, you know, I- I'm your guy. You know, and it's just kind of like, and that, that's like a, an appealing uh, character. And I see, like, little hints of that with this, this kind of work. And, uh, yeah, so let's um, talk about um, the, uh, the title of the book. Uh, the word flow is in there. So, so what does this mean? Why is this so important to understanding messengering? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And it comes down to, I mean, flow is a, is a, is a psychological concept about uh, a sort of a state, uh, a sort of psychological state of being engrossed in an activity. So uh, a good way of sort of thinking about flow is a, is a tennis match where you are playing an opponent who is perfectly matched to your skill. So if you're playing, if you're playing a, an opponent who is below your skills, the game could be boring. If you're playing a, an opponent who's far above your skills, the game could be stressful because you realize that like, you're not really able to keep up with your opponent and you're going to lose. But if you're playing someone who's perfectly matched, in other words, the, the skills that you have are perfectly mated to the skills required in order to uh, continue the volley of the ball, that, that would be an example of flow. Like you're you have to be completely focused in that moment in order to con- continue doing what you're trying to do, but you're also able to do it. Mm-hmm. So in that moment of being in flow, you sort of stop the process of, of sort of a critical self-analysis, uh, like you, you don't think about what time it is, you don't think about what you're going to do later in the day, you don't think about what you did earlier in the day. You're, you're just in that moment. 
And so this is this idea of flow. And what we see with bike messengers that in order to, to make their deliveries, in order to weave their way through traffic, that that is a, 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 a mentally it's a state of flow in that you're engrossed in the activity of, of being safe on your bicycle, of being quick on your bicycle, and that takes, you know, all your mental skills as well as a lot of physical skills in order to make that happen. And that's an enjoyable thing, to be in this state of flow is enjoyable. And, again, thinking about uh, our average work days, we're, we're often or very rarely in flow. Instead, we're looking at the clock, thinking, okay, you know, two more hours, I get to go home. Or we're sort of daydreaming in, at work because we don't really want to be doing the, the data entry we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And so those are the opposite of flow. That's boredom or alienation or frustration. All right, so we accept that professional athletes get into that state of flow and they they talk about it and you mentioned tennis and uh, other sports where you're just you're so dialed into to what's happening right here and now that you don't have time to really be thinking ahead or to the past you're just here i am now got a job to do right now i need to be focused on this we accept that we accept it in uh, uh musicians rock stars you know you just like you're so in sync with the band and you're just uh, nothing else is is going on you just got you're staying in that groove and so this is like what is so fascinating about bike messengers is that it's a, it's a job you're not a, a uh, star athlete or a rock star you are doing what is considered by most people a pretty mundane job but you're making it like that type of activity, what we only think of is like that people are in these really celebrity type uh, of uh, activities. And so I think what you're saying is that we need to be looking at that. We need to, all of us, all the work that we do, how can I make that happen in my work? If And if I can't, maybe I need to be reexamining what I'm doing or just reexamining work in general, how we as a society put people in positions that are... uh, uh, sort of uh, soul-stifling. Yes, yeah. you know, I mean, that's a, a really good, uh, good way of putting it. And so you use the example of sort of rock stars and athletes. And so the other way to think about flow is that most of us do experience flow in what we do for leisure, right? I mean, that's why we mountain bike on the weekends or we go jogging or we play chess or uh, checkers or whatever. It's those sort of leisure activities where most of us experience flow. And then in our workday, we, we were sort of... Uh, less likely to experience it. That's not to say that there aren't some, some jobs or some days that are more enjoyable than others. So by and large, we dread going to work because it doesn't have those, that, those flow-like qualities that we find in our free time. And so as you pointed out, bike messengers are able to experience that in their day. And so, yes, it, it does get at, this, at this, point, this sort of larger point that you bring up about what does that say about our work relations. And so one of the particularly interesting things about thinking about the occupation of, of messengers is that messengering does not offer what, what most people see as a good bargain for their labor. It's, it's very dangerous work. It's physically strenuous work. It pays very little. It has basically no security, and there's very few benefits that come with it. And so, by and large, that's considered a, a bad trade for your labor, right? You know, I mean, unions in this country have worked very hard to guarantee higher wages, to guarantee health coverage, to, to have some sort of job security. But here we see a, uh, an occupation that where the workers are so eager to work, but yet they're making this trade that, again, by most union standards would be very, very poor. <laughs> and so that really speaks to, I think, two separate issues about labor. One is about exploitation. And so unions have done a very good job in this country. Obviously, they could have done 
uh, we could still do more, but, I mean, compared to how work relations were in the early 1900s, unions have made great headway in reducing the amount of exploitation workers in this country experience. But the idea of alienation, right, like how we actually feel towards our labor, the sort of meaning our labor gives us, we've sort of forgotten about that aspect, I think, to a large degree, and come to expect our work to be alienating, but just hope that we're paid a decent amount at the end of the day. Whereas messengers, we see a lot of exploitation, but very little alienation. Yeah, and it's uh, and this brings us to another big point of your book, and that is that the work day, the the work uh, that their day job, the messengering, and then their after work activities, and uh, they engage in something called alley cats, which I want you to describe. In that it's an extension, and there's not like most of us make that distinction. You said, like, we go to the day job, and then it's just like, oh, okay, I just get through it, I get a paycheck, and now it's the weekend, and I'm going to mountain bike or backpacking or uh, go to watch a sporting event. So this is like there's there's not this distinction between your after-work activities and the day job. Talk to us about that in the Alley Cats. Yeah, so alley cats are a really great example or really an illustration of how how much the messenger identity is wrapped up in their occupation and how much the occupation can be enjoyable. Is alley cats, so I guess the good starting point is to say that messengers spend their day going from going to different points of the city, and messengers have a manifest with them, and so when they make a delivery, whoever they deliver to signs this piece of paper that's proof that, the, that what they delivered was delivered, right? Uh, and so alley cats mimic this basic structure of going to different points throughout the city and having your manifest signed. And so instead of making deliveries in an alley cat, you're going to what's called usually called checkpoints, and at the checkpoint someone will stamp or sign your manifest to prove that you went to that checkpoint, there will be a series of checkpoints, and the, la- and the first person to the last checkpoint wins, <laughs> which, again, is, is doing for free what you would otherwise be doing for pay. And, but these races, these alley cats, are, are really, uh, really important social events. They're really basically celebrations of, of messenger labor, and they celebrate the most exciting and the most dangerous parts of messenger work, which are riding extremely fast through open traffic. And so some of these events are, are sort of small local events, and other uh, alley cats are large enough to draw people from all over the world. So the first alley cat uh, I went to, I mean, it was so big, it's, it's almost just called, a, you could just call it a messenger event, but it involved an alley cat aspect. It had people from uh, Australia, Japan, uh, I believe some guy from, I believe there was someone from Ireland, as well as uh, messengers from all over the United States. Uh, came to New York City to, to participate in this sort of night-long uh, alley cat. And that's, I mean, that's really remarkable. The idea that, you know, a secretary would, would travel from Japan to see if, if uh, he or she could type faster than, <laughs> than, a, than a messenger from San Francisco or a messenger, or a, or, sorry, a secretary from San Francisco or from New York, I mean, that's, that's ludicrous. That's, yes. that's not going to happen. But, but here we see that with, uh, with messengers. Yeah, that is just quite uh, fascinating. It's all part of this this subculture, and these people they tend to hang out with each other. And even though they might be not be working as messengers anymore, they still often hang out with the people. And there's a whole uh, 
you know, you got to kind of earn certain types of respect, and it, it takes a while to, to be able to throw off the label of rookie. You, you really have to earn that. And so you worked as a messenger. Tell us a little bit about how that was, how you started doing it, and some of the things you saw in addition to this alley cat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so basically I was in uh, graduate school, and I knew uh, that I uh, wanted to study something about uh, subcultures, and I, I knew from, from living in other places that uh, that bike messengers were this subculture based in an occupation, and, and then that messengers really identified with their labor. And so, like I said at the beginning of the show, I, I wanted to understand what about this job could be meaningful, you know. Uh, so I set out, uh, moved, moved, moved to New York for a year, and uh, I had been told previously that it was pretty easy to get a job as a messenger, so I just sort of moved there and uh, got, got a job. And it was, it was uh, frightening and exciting all, all at the same time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if... For people that haven't ridden in, in a city like uh, New York, and I don't know if there's really any other city like New York, I mean, <laughs> no, it I is uh, so. an intense crush of, of traffic, and it was, I'd ridden my bike a little bit in, in Boston, but I actually moved there directly from Athens, Georgia, which is a small college town, and so it was uh, it was quite an experience to sort of be thrust <laughs> thrust into this, this giant uh, swirling mass of traffic, and it took me, took me a while to sort of get get my bearings, but after a while, you, you actually learn to really sort of relish uh, being a biker in, in that city. There is a, a certain rhythm to, to the traffic once you understand it, and for a long time, I, I really missed having, having that thrill. So how long did it take to go from, like, starting out and, like, wow, this is, this is kind of scary, and I'm not sure what I'm doing here, to, like, wow, I'm just love going to work every day yeah no that's a that's a good question i mean i think that uh i think that most people that are attracted to the to the messenger occupation and and i mean i'd been into bicycles before so i definitely had beyond my my own sociological interest in it i did have a personal interest in, in being paid to ride a bike and so I, I liked it from day one but slowly over time i felt maybe more competent <laughs> at it uh, my first day, I mean, I had no idea where I was going in the city, and I, I, I think that I actually rear-ended a car because I wasn't paying attention and just, like, rode my bike straight into the back of a car. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, you, you, gain, you gain skills over time, and some of, like, the, the, the long-time messengers, and, I mean, there's people in New York that have been messengers for 20-plus years, and some of those guys, I mean, they have so much just flow on their bike. I mean, they just... And they just just know where they are in traffic, in and in almost like a martial artist knows where they are, you know, in a fight. They just know where they are in traffic, and it's really remarkable to watch. It almost sounds like a zen type of thing of just getting, you know, just the, the flow. You know, it's just like you're not thinking about it. It's all, it's being done in this real intuitive way at a certain point. Yeah, no, that, that, is, that is very true, and there's definitely people that talk about it being a zen thing. Uh, and yeah, and that's very true. And actually, another way to think about flow, we talked about flow earlier in terms of uh, a psychological concept, but there's actually a second part to flow in terms of bike messengers, and that's actually how they flow in the physical environment. So being a bike messenger, you know, when you're, when you're focused on, on making delivery, you have that psychological flow. You're engrossed in, in your labor, but integral to that is actually having flow through traffic, which is to, to understand 
how traffic is moving and how you can fit your way through that traffic in order to get where you're going in an in a efficient and fast manner. And this becomes a really big part of how, how the messenger subculture exists in that it really needs that sort of dense urban traffic. So you couldn't have the same sort of bicycling subculture in Irvine <laughs> that you can in, in New York City. That's not to say you can't have a bicycle subculture in Irvine, but because the traffic and the urban environment is so sprawled, in that area, it can't have the, the same sort of relationship to the environment that you can have in a dense city like San Francisco or Boston. Yeah, that relationship to the environment, another point you just really uh, hammer away at in, in the book, really important stuff. And yeah, the book, again, Urban Flow, Bike Messengers and the City, our guest today, Jeffrey Kidder. And, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about the bicycles themselves. This was fascinating to me. I, I, I'm not a bike person. Let's be really clear about this. I, uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ridden a bicycle since I was a, a child. And so, uh, not that I don't like them. It's just whatever. It's just the path I'm on. But um, so I, I didn't know anything about these and reading about this and uh, these, these track bikes that some of these guys use and no brakes. That that, that kind of blew my mind. And, and can you talk about that and why these bikes are used? Yeah, there's actually a pretty interesting history with track bikes on city streets. So a track bike is, is, a, is a bicycle specifically designed for track racing. And so track racing is a, it was a, a formerly very, very popular sport in the U.S. It's sort of the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and it, it's racing on a, on a velodrome, which is an uh, oval track with a banked corners. Mm-hmm. And because it's on this track and it's separated from the environment, it doesn't involve hills and all these other things, uh, track bikes did not incorporate uh, derailers and gears and brakes because you didn't need them. You were just going around this track. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for your listeners, to the extent that the average person has seen a, a track bike, uh, most people's exposure would be during the Summer Olympics. There are uh, track events. Right. Uh, however... Uh, that's actually changed now. I mean, track bikes have become trendy, and we can talk about that in a second. But anyways, so there are these bikes that have been around for a long time. They're very simple, right, by, not, by only having one gear, having no brakes, and this gear is fixed. And by having a fixed gear, that means that uh, there's no coasting on the bicycle. If the, if the rear wheel is spinning, the pedals are spinning. Mm-hmm. So you can slow down the bike or sort of force the bike to stop by resisting the, the forward momentum of the pedals. And so starting in like the late, or sorry, the early 1980s, uh, some messengers, uh, then there's, there's some like sort of uh, some strange historical reasons why this is true, but we don't need to get into that. We can just say in the early, early 80s, uh, some messengers decided to start being messengers on, on track bikes in New York City because uh, they, were, they were simpler. Like, there was less you had to tune up. There was less to break. There was less to steal. And crime was a huge problem in New York in the early 80s. I mean, yeah. that still is a problem, but in the early 80s it was a real problem. And so they started using these very simple bikes in order to do, do their deliveries. And so for, for many, many, many years, if, if you saw someone riding a track bike in, in the city, you could be safe to assume that person was either a messenger or they used to be a messenger. But then in the last in the last 10 years or so, track bikes have started 
just to become sort of trendy. And so now fixed-gear bikes and track bikes are pretty common. I'm sure there's quite a few of them on the streets of Irvine and on uh, UCI's campus. But uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. And so there's this thing of, like, th- bikes like that, they get trendy and, like, hipsters think it's all the thing to do and and then there is like the the real bike messengers there's a little bit of a uh, uh a non-appreciation of of that of of kind of outsiders using these bikes is not necessarily outright hostility but it's sort of a a look of derision is that correct yeah i mean i think that all all subcultures have to have to have certain barriers to let to let the insiders of that subculture sort of know who's who's in and who's out of that subculture. Uh, you were playing uh, some punk music, I believe, before I went on. Yeah. So punk has its own uh, its own subcultural barriers that they protect. And so one of the original markers of of what distinguished the messenger subculture from other types of cyclists used to be the track bike, because either you were a track racer, which is a, used to used to be a pretty obscure uh, sport. Or you were, if you had a track bike, you were a messenger, and you were the person that would ride on city streets with this bike that doesn't have any brakes and is generally considered a, a kind of crazy way to ride in urban traffic. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, as it's become trendy, it, you no longer no longer seeing somebody on a track bike. Uh, that's no longer a, uh, an indication that somebody is a is a bike messenger. And so so yeah, I think that that's been. Uh, a little disappointing <laughs> for people, right? In the same way that maybe uh, when when Green Day started being sold in in uh, malls across America, that was a little <laughs> disappointing for the uh, for the East Bay punks, perhaps. Or just seeing regular kids with green hair and you know piercings and things, and you're like, wait, that used to just be punk rockers that did that, and so yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, so let's get back to the the <laughs> no brakes on on the uh, track bikes if you're going quite fast and a sudden stop needs to be made, this is a problem, right? It is and it isn't. Uh, because <laughs> this is maybe sort of hard to explain for someone that hasn't uh, ridden, ridden one, but you actually do have a lot of control on a track bike. The way, because, because you, you, uh, you can't coast, that means that like sort of every pedal stroke you have on, on a fixed-gear bicycle is is giving you sort of like feedback from that bicycle's uh, momentum, which is different than on a bicycle that coasts within handbrakes. But having all the forward momentum of a bicycle uh, going through the, the pedals of the bike gives you, gives you a type of control that's very different from a, from a freewheel bicycle. And so uh, you, can, you can actually force the bike to stop by sort of leaning forward and forcing the... Uh, the pedals to stop moving, which then locks up the rear wheel, and you sort of skid or skip mm. to a to a stop. But I mean, there is a certain point where if you're in a flat out sprint, you can't just make that happen magically. But a bicycle with handbrakes is the same way. I mean, if you're going 35 miles on a 35 miles an hour on a bike with brakes, if you slam on the brakes, you're going to fly off of the bike. I mean, that's simple physics. So yeah, yeah. So yeah I guess we could say that. That all all moving objects, <laughs> and the, the faster you move, the longer it's going to take you to slow down safely. Right, right, and and so it is. Uh, n- no matter how uh, 
good a bicycle messenger is they, there there are injuries and and there are even occasional deaths in this field uh, w- what can you tell us about that i mean maybe what you witnessed when you were out there working yeah i mean thankfully in none of the field sites i studied in three places i, I worked in new york i worked in uh, seattle and then san diego uh, and thankfully none of the places that i worked uh, had uh, a death while I was doing my research, but uh, before I had moved to New York, and then pretty much as soon as I moved away from New York, uh, some some messengers had died. So the summer I left New York, after I left, two two people in two separate incidences were uh, were killed on the job. Uh, in Seattle, it, it's been a while since someone was killed on the job, but someone did die in the early two thousands uh, working, and and it's. On one level, not surprising, simply because any time you have uh, people on bicycles mixing in with automobiles, uh, bicycle obviously is like a 20-pound machine that offers no real protection to its rider, a car weighing thousands of pounds, uh, yeah, and moving much faster. If in a collision, the, the cyclist is always going to lose. And so, uh, so yeah, there really are uh, very tragic consequences that can happen. And then in terms of much smaller injuries, you know, like minor broken bones, cuts and scrapes and bruises and close calls, those were constant uh, parts of, of uh, the lives of the people that, that are in my book. And generally speaking, when these types of things happen, then the person is going to be out of work for a while with not any type of uh, compensation for that downtime. Yeah, I mean that that is uh, it, it does it does vary by company, but especially in like uh, a place like New York, where a lot of the riders are uh, are paid on commission. There's there's not if you get hurt, you know, you're not going to make commission while while you can't ride. And so going back to the sort of lack of job security, a lot of riders are are one injury away, or even for that matter, a broken bicycle away from from not being able to get a paycheck the next day. Mm-hmm. And I actually got uh, one, one of my jobs. I, I originally worked for a large company, and then I uh, was able to move to a, a much smaller company, and that smaller company paid a uh, much better commission because they only had, like, two riders. This company was that small. They had two riders, and so one of them had uh, seriously sprained his uh, ankle. And so the company couldn't survive without having, having two riders on the road. And... Uh, so yeah, I mean, there wasn't. In order for the company to survive, they had to replace him. And but it's really unfortunate for for the guy that had the sprained ankle. I mean, I, it's a it was a really rough, really rough shake. But that's sort of the the nature of the occupation. You work when you can, and you don't when you can't. Uh, but uh, at least it's, he was once he healed, he was able to get a job in another place without too much trouble. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, there's a real cutthroat aspect to certain certain parts of it. Yeah, yeah. Again, we're speaking with Jeffrey Kidder, and we're talking about his book, Urban Flow, Bike Messengers in the City. Uh, we touched on this a little bit. Maybe we could go into it a little more. And this is the, the notion that um, uh, bike messengers uh, exist in this place that's sort of betwixt and between, in this sort of uh, nether realm that's not really this and not really that. And can, can you talk a little more about that and how that is part of the appeal? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean, the way that I guess the easiest way to think about it is that when urban planners design cities, uh, I mean, more and more we're seeing bike lanes, but 
what the sort of traditional design of cities is you have sidewalks for pedestrians and roads for cars. And so bicycles have this weird, we could say, liminal position within the urban environment. They're not pedestrians, but they're not cars either. And so there's not really an official place for bikes. And, again, this changes once you start putting in bike lanes, which is a, a, an interesting side issue to this, but the sort of, at, the sort of basic dichotomy between uh, vehicle and pedestrian bikes sort of fall, fall to the wayside. But that allows the messenger or, or any cyclist that, that chooses to ride this way uh, a certain freedom in, in being structured out of, of the, uh, the planning infrastructure that allows the cyclist to, to weave between the cracks, so to speak, of, of, of the city traffic and, and, and move in ways that weren't really intended or thought about in terms of traffic engineering or uh, traffic planners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you hear people use the expression and kind of think outside the box, but most of us most of the time are kind of comfortable being in, in, in a category. But so this is like a, an opportunity to not be, you, you know, you kind of that, that in-between place. And I think for some of us that, that's, that's rather uh, appealing. And it's some, for some of us, it's appealing to, to look at people who, who, don't, who aren't in one of those categories for whatever reason. It, uh, another thing I want to ask you about is the, uh, the majority of messengers are, are men, but, but there are women. So are women generally attracted to this kind of work in a maybe a little different way than men are? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And uh, I think there's a couple points to, to think about. One is that you're certainly correct that, that the, the vast majority of, of bike messengers are men. And, and given that the job is uh, physically strenuous and uh, very dangerous, uh, and also it can sometimes re- result in confrontations because messengers are, all, all cyclists incur, uh, incur uh, road rage on the part of drivers, but because uh, messengers are spend you know, eight, eight, nine, ten hours a day, in, in dense traffic, they, they get a lot of road rage directed at them. And so that sort of work environment is, is, is not appealing to a lot of people, but it's even less appealing to a lot of women, uh, which, again, isn't surprising, I mean, because of, because of the danger and the uh, aggression that sometimes goes along with it. But the women that do become messengers, especially like in a city like New York where uh, – there's an occupation, and there's you know maybe a thousand people working as bike messengers, and then of that group, maybe a couple hundred are are real active participants in this uh, bicycle subculture that we've been talking about. But in New York, the women that become bike messengers are they're almost all part of the subculture and like very active uh, and major participants in the subculture. So so there's some men that might become bike messengers that just do it for a job, and they do go home at the end of the day and. It's not a huge part of who they are as a person. But the women that are attracted to it seem more likely to be major participants in, in the, uh, the subculture and, and travel the races and do those sort of things. And two, two of the, the women I interviewed talking about this job, they made basically the same observation, and it's a really interesting one, in that they sort of felt as though there were similarities between all the women that they knew in Seattle that were messengers, and there were similarities between uh, a lot of the men that that did the job in Seattle, but they felt as though the, the similarities between the women and the men weren't the same similarities. And, and the way they 
basically described it was that to be a, a man and be a bike messenger is in many ways maybe sort of dropping out of the rat race, right, saying, you know, I'm going to sort of do this bohemian sort of lifestyle thing because I can. Whereas for a lot of women, to do something that was so physically strenuous, to do something that had uh, this sort of outlaw character to it that, that might involve uh, aggressive behavior or taking on aggressive behavior, that that in many ways was sort of uh, a certain sort of like taking on a sort of defiant role, a non-traditional role in terms of uh, femininity. Yeah, well, really interesting. And there's so much more in your book that is also utterly fascinating. A, a great study, and um, we're, we're really out of time here, Jeffrey. Is there anything you uh, just want to leave us with quickly or give us any uh, a website or anything like that? Uh, I guess I just leave with uh, whether we're talking about bike messengers or cyclists. Just uh, If you're in a car, just just please remember the, to, uh, I don't know, be, be be polite. <laughs> Don't run anybody over. <laughs> okay, and again, great, great study, great work. I really enjoyed reading the book. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show with us today, Jeffrey Kidder. Yeah, thanks for talking with me. Okay, take care now. Bye. All right, yes, Jeffrey Kidder, and again, the book Urban Flow, Bike Messengers, and the City. Uh, I'm going to leave you with a little music here, uh, and uh, well, then we close out the show. But again, it's uh, Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine, Robert Larson. And again, the opinions expressed on this program, not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. You want to give me some feedback on the show? I always appreciate that. R.G. Larson at KUCI.org. Be talking to you on Out the Rabbit Hole next week. Mm-hmm.